Father, we pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, we'll see a video in a few minutes, and we've had just kind of one of those days where um, I got here really early this morning, and, and uh, what I, I, I didn't plan on was that uh, you can control lots of things with technology, but you cannot control Google, and so Google did not want to work for me today. But um, So we should have a video later, it's just not the way we would like to do it on the front end. But, but I'm thinking how each of us have moments in our life, significant moments, kind of markers, if you will. Moments that our life was changed dramatically from that moment forward, that it reshaped us, it changed us, it, it transformed us. I mean, it, it, it helped us become the person that we are today. And some of those things are really good, and some of those things are not so good. I mean, we look back on our lives, and we notice certain things happen, and they shaped us, and we're like, oh, yeah, that was really good, and, and you know, it, was, it, it made me become like this. And other things, we go, oh, if I could go back, I would. So I started thinking in my own life even, what are the markers of my life? What are the markers that have been significant? What are the things that have shaped me? I mean, there's some kind of obvious ones if you got to know me at all, you know, getting married, having a couple kids, uh, even moving here. Those are, those are easy markers to see. Those don't take much effort. But then if I begin to talk about other markers in my life, and so my parents were here today, and so I decided I'd, I'd pick on them. So I won't talk about the fact that, I mean, they got lost on the way to my son's baseball game yesterday because um, they needed different markers, better signage or something, I don't know. But, but one of the things that we also begin to find is that, that markers in our life matter in significant ways. And so I, I remember when I was about 18 years old, there was a moment when I was talking to my dad, and I was actually giving him a tennis lesson, and, and, and we're talking about something pretty significant. And, and he, in the middle of that... Um, he stepped over the net. He's like six foot four, so it's not that hard to do. I mean, for me, it's pretty impressive. I'd have to jump, but, but he didn't. He just kind of walked. Um, and, he, and he came over and he just said, I, I'm proud of you and I love you. And he had tears in his eyes and he gave me a hug. And he does not, he's just not, that, he's kind of stoic and kind of not the guy who does that kind of stuff. So it's pretty significant. I still remember it. It is a moment that sticks out in my life. Or I could tell you when I was 17, I had, I had been away playing tennis and, and I came back from a tournament and and um, I got home, it was about 11 o'clock on a Thursday, I'll never forget it, and I walked in the house, and my mom said, Aaron, uh, we sit down? My mom cut hair, and she was sitting in, in, the, in the room where she cuts hair at our house, and I sat down, and she says, um, she had tears in her eyes, she said, I, I need to talk to you about something. She said, um, your cousin died tonight. And I'm racking my brain, I don't, I, I don't know, what? She said, well, you know, you, you actually haven't seen him since you're about three years old. And so it's kind of a, each of our families have unique stories, and sometimes there are stories that have backgrounds that you didn't know anything about, and this was one of them for me. And, and he was killed by a drunk driver that night, and so, so she looked at me after all this, and, and she just said to me, and we talked about the next two days, was there's nothing you can do in your life that, your, ma, that your, your dad and I will not be a part of. There's nothing you can do that we won't offer forgiveness, that we won't be with you, that we won't talk with you through it. So don't ever think there's anything you have to hide or that you have to keep to yourself, and so that moment also stands out. But see, those are, those are kind of relatively good moments in my life, but there are other moments that stand out that, that aren't so good. Um, see, I remember in high school, I, I took a, a kind of a beating from some teammates for, for a couple of years in sports, and um, not physical, but, but verbal. And so it got to the point where I, I kind of became someone I didn't want to become. I, I, I just, rather than speaking, I would be silent. And so I would watch stuff happen in every aspect of my life and stay silent. And it, it wasn't really how I, I think God, God wired me, but it was the way I kind of allowed myself to be shaped into. And so there was this moment when, 
when a girl, Amanda, and I have tried to find her since this day, and I cannot find her anywhere online, and so uh, you probably don't know her, but, but if you do, her name's Amanda Combs. If she got married, that's great. I, I don't know, but, but Amanda was a girl um, in school, and she was always severely overweight. And so there was this moment in the hallway where she was just getting blasted by other students, and, and everything in me knew it was wrong, but nothing in me wanted to say anything because I was afraid that would be turned on me. And so I stayed silent, and I watched her sobbingly walk down the hallway. And that scene is etched in my mind, because everything in me wishes I had, I had spoken up, wishing, wished I had stood up, that I had said something, because I knew I should, and I was capable, and I could have stopped it, and I didn't. And so I made a vow that day that I would never be silent for someone who was oppressed or marginalized or pushed aside ever again. Because, see, I can't go back and fix that moment. I can only move on from it. But there are markers. It was a marker in my life that has shaped me. See, sometimes other markers in our life shape us spiritually. I'll tell you the moment when I was in college, and we have these places that are called benches, or some people think they're weird pieces of wood in the front of a sanctuary in a church. That's cool, too. But, but they've been significant in my life. There was a moment in my senior year of college where I was praying at an altar, a place kind of like this. And, and I was just praying God would give me direction, and I would know what to do with my life. And I... I I mean, I knew I wanted to do ministry, but all that, it was just this kind of fearful thing of what's next. In just a couple months, I'm done from here, and I don't know where I'm going. And I remember kneeling and praying and just kind of, kind of crying, and, and a professor came up, and he put his hand on my shoulder um, as he was walking by, and he just whispered these words into my ear. He says, I have great faith in you. And in that moment, it was as if God was speaking to me, and so I, I went to him, a couple years later. And so that became pretty significant to me. I mean, I mean he'd, he'd come to a tennis match or two. I mean, he was kind of invested in me. And, and I went to him a couple years later, and I said, I don't know if you remember doing this. I don't know if you remember this, but this really was significant for me. I mean, it was as if God was speaking through you to me in that moment. I needed to hear that. And he says, well, I sensed you needed to hear that, and God was telling me to tell you. Marker in my life. See, the truth is everyone in this room has markers in their lives. Some of them are good. Some of them are things you look back and you smile. Other things you go, oh. I mean, some of us have been abused, beaten, neglected, unloved, unwanted. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so those things have marked us as well. And we look back on our life and they are pivotal moments that have shaped us to who we have become today. But what if what if the markers in our life, in fact, there will, I don't care how old you are in this room, there will always be another marker in your life, something that will reshape you in a new way. What if, what if God really does want to shape us and mold us into something better? What if he really does want us to have markers in our lives that change us dramatically? So I've been reading a lot about um, young people in the church today and, and why they're staying or leaving the church. And, and one of the things I'm, I've become very convicted of is this, that if churches don't grow young, they grow old and they die, and that's not good. So what is it that young people are desperately searching for? And there's kind of three things. That they, they want to know their identity. Who am I? They want to know where they belong. And they want to know what their purpose is. So identity and belonging and purpose. Who am I? Where do I fit? What's the point of this? But the truth is, I don't think it's just young people that want to know that. I think it's all of us. I think it's, it's more pressing when we're young. But I think it matters all of our life. Who am I? Where do I fit? What's the purpose of my life? 
And so it's kind of crazy to think that I think there's a connection between markers in the life of Jesus and markers in our life, but I think that's true. And this morning we'll be in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 uh, through 38, and we'll look at that in just a few moments. But, but this story we looked at last week that Lamar shared about was the story of John the Baptist who came, and he was preaching this message of repentance. In other words, turn from the life you have been living and go another way. In other words, he was baptizing people saying, let this moment be a marker in your life where who you used to be is no longer who you are. And he looked at the person of John the Baptist himself who said, I must decrease so that he can increase. In other words, I need to become less so Jesus can become greater. And Jesus comes into the scene, and this is kind of where the story picks up. And so we've talked about the gospel writer Luke was just a, a Greek doctor who wanted people to know the Jesus that changed his life because there had been a moment in time, a marker, if you will, which, which had changed him, and he wanted others to experience that same marker in their lives. So you stand with me this morning as we read from Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was a son, so it was thought of Joseph. And I'm going to spare you a lot of words and names that are hard to pronounce. I'm going to go to the very last line. Son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what I, I left out a lot in between there. We'll talk about it a little bit. But if you don't get all the names right, it's okay. Uh, it's probably not going to be on any test. Um, but see, this, this text, this story, it begins with Jesus, who's, who goes out in the desert, and he goes to John, and he says, John, I want to be baptized. And if you remember the story we talked about, John, John said about Jesus, he's someone who's so holy, so good, so awesome, I can't even hold his sandals that are dirty. And Jesus comes to him and says, well, hey, well, um, John, will you baptize me? And John's response is, what? No. You can baptize me if you want, but, but Jesus says, no, 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 I, I want you to baptize me. And if you're like me, you're probably like John thinking, well, aren't you like, I believe you're the Son of God, you're this Messiah, this Savior that, that the Scripture has talked about that's coming to save all of humanity, and, and, and you're supposed to be sinless, and all these kinds of things, and if that's all true, why, why do you need me to baptize you? It's a great question, a question I've also often wondered about. And so most kind of believe that Jesus wants to get baptized because it's in recognition of this idea that this repentance, this turning from one way of life to another really is the mark of God's people. Also, Jesus recognized that it's kind of the commissioning, it's the sending of him into ministry. It's, he's 30 years old, and he recognized this moment. This is, this is what God has waited for for him. He spent his whole life prepping for this. And so Jesus is baptized, and the moment he's being baptized, he's praying as he's baptized, and it says the heavens opened up, and a voice, the voice of God said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if like when I was baptized at 17, I, I mean, this didn't happen to me, but if it did, I mean, and maybe it did for you, which is awesome, if the voice of heaven opened up and a voice said to you, this is my son or daughter whom I love, with you I'm well pleased, if that happened in your life, then I'm pretty sure it's a pretty significant marker for you. I mean, my guess is it didn't happen for you, but, but this is what, what happened for Jesus. In this moment, he, he knows without a doubt 
who he is. He knows his identity. He knows he belongs. And in this moment, Jesus also knows his purpose as a part of the redemption that he really is the one that's come to save the world. And in this moment, Jesus knows his identity, knows he belongs, and he knows his purpose. And after this, we see Luke tells us the story of Jesus' family. And at first glance, it's kind of like, ah, what's the point of this? I mean, Matthew does it really early on in the story, which makes sense. I mean, Jesus isn't even born yet, and he's telling the genealogy. That makes some sense. I mean, I get that. But, but why here? Why, why in Luke's gospel does he tell us after the birth, after all these things? Why now does Luke tell us the genealogy of Jesus? And if, if you're, you know, you don't need to be a biblical, biblical scholar to notice that Matthew and Luke's genealogy is different. And most people are like, well, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> True. But most believe that, that this one actually probably is the genealogy of Mary, and, and Matthew's is really the genealogy of Joseph, which makes some sense in that culture that you would recognize both and know both. But, but what we see in this genealogy is probably what so many of us see in our own lives. We look back, and not everything in it is perfect. I mean, we could pick on David. David's in both genealogies, and we probably know the story of David. I mean, there was even a television show that came out a, a year or two ago. It didn't last very long. It wasn't all that well written. Uh, David's story probably is more interesting than the show was, but, but David was this king, a man after God's own heart, and yet in the midst of that, he, he saw his neighbor's wife, and he decided that he liked his neighbor's wife, and so he had her come to his house. Um, story goes this way, that they, they were together, and then he had her husband killed. I mean, it doesn't sound like a great story in a family tree, right? I mean, that's not one you tell at the dinner table. There are other people in the story. I mean, we could go back to Adam. I mean, the, the, the first man, right? I mean, I mean, his choice really is this, that, that God loves humanity enough to create us in such a way that we're in relationship with God. And so Adam says, well, here's the thing. I, God, I like you. And I understand that for you to show love to us and for us to be in a loving relationship, that we have to be able to choose to not be in relationship with you. And so the truth is... Um, I'm just going to choose not to be, and I'm going to do what you told me not to do. It's the crazy part about God. He loves us enough to let us go where we want to go. It's also why some of the markers in our life we don't really love. This genealogy of Jesus isn't perfect, and I laughed. I mentioned in the first service that the first wedding I ever officiated, um, because we've all got that kind of crazy aunt or uncle or cousin or nephew, or we're the crazy person in our family, and and the first wedding I ever officiated, it was one of those, like, I got a call on Tuesday because the pastor was supposed to do it backed out, and and the wedding was Saturday, and so I said, did you guys do any premarital counseling? And they said no, and I wasn't even married, and so we did this, like, crash course two-day premarital counseling where I'm calling a counselor going, hey, what should I say? Um, They said this, how do I respond? I mean, this is kind of what it was like. So at the wedding, they said, would you like to stay for the reception? And and I wasn't smart enough to say, no, I would not. I don't know anyone. I don't want to be there. That's what I should have said. Instead, I went, I said, oh, sure, I'd love to be a part of your reception. So I gathered at the reception, and they stuck me in the back corner at the table with the crazy uncle and his new wife, and I learned all kinds of stuff about their family that I never needed to know. (laughs) Jesus' family tree is not much different than ours. But in this moment where he's baptized, the heavens open up, and God speaks to him and says, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. See, I... I think there are significant moments in our life, markers, if you will, signs. We 
We look back and they have shaped us. And for Jesus, this was one that shaped him for these last three years of his life, the three years of his ministry. And it was these words, you are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And see, I I believe with all that I am that God wants to say to you and I, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. He wants to give us an identity. He wants our identity not to be wrapped up in our job or our family or anything else. He wants our identity to be wrapped up in him as one of his children who is loved. At the same time, he wants us to belong to part of the community of faith. I mean, it's part of what John did earlier this morning by becoming a member of our church. It's this idea that that God wants us to be connected to one another in the context of community, and he wants us to shape us and mold us in such a way that we are radically transformed. We do this together. So where do you belong? Yeah, you belong. We're going to make room for you. We will make room even for the crazy uncle. And what's our purpose? It's the same one as Jesus, to redeem the world. But most of the time, we look back at our life and we think we have been so shaped by our past. We've been so shaped by our past that we were stuck in the present. We don't even think about the future. And see, what Jesus recognizes is in this moment, he knows kind of what's going to come. I mean, he's read the scriptures. He knows how this ends for the person who's the Savior, the Messiah. He, he knows he's going to die. But, but he knows his future about being redeemed, restored, the resurrection of all things. And so he says, well, I'm not going to be defined by my family's past or even by my present, but I'm going to let the future reality of who God is going to create me to be, be my present guide. And it's true for us. What if the markers of our past, maybe they have shaped us to this day, but what if they're not the markers that shape us for tomorrow? Or even for right now? It's why I believe that sometimes we, we miss the part about this repentance, this turning from one way of life and moving to another that reshapes us and reorients us to a new understanding of who God is. It's why today that that we all need new markers in our life so that we know that our past doesn't have to define our present, and it sure as heck doesn't have to define our future. But our future can be defined by the God who redeems and restores and makes all things new. So whether you have been neglected or abused or beaten or unwanted, whether you have regrets that just keep you up at night, whether that's true or not, what God wants to say to us is in the baptism of Jesus, his whole family past was gone, I can do the same thing in you. See, I think one of the things that hurts the church at times is we, we, um, we, can, we can look backwards and go, oh, do you remember when? And I don't mean like just remembering when, like it was, oh, that was cool. That was a pretty cool event. I mean, that was fun. It kind of shaped me. But we can look back and go, oh, that's so bad today. Do you remember when we used to do this? This was the way it was meant to be. Um, that's called idolatry. In fact, that's actually sinful. But what if, we, what if we recognize the value of the past, but what if we didn't live in it? I mean, part of the church that's healthy, it's, it's confessional. It's recognizing that, hey, it's, it's awesome what's happened before, but we want to repent of where we were wrong in those days. We want to repent of where we're wrong in these days, and we want to be the church of the redeemed people that transforms the world today and tomorrow. But it's not just communal or, or congregational or among the community of faith. It's also deeply personal. And God wants the marker in our life to be moments of deep confession and repentance and turning from lives and regrets and past and brokenness and sin. It wants to be turning from that way of life and turning towards Him. He wants us to hear these words, You are my son. You are my daughter. 
whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. But sometimes if we're not careful, we look at things in our past and we don't think they can be changed or amended or fixed. But sometimes we need to know there are stories that there's nothing we can do. There's no place that we can go that God can't redeem. And so this is where I said this earlier today that, that Google was not my friend today. Um, but we have a video we think we can show, but we've just got to show it a little differently than we normally show stuff. Um, we'll see. Oh, oh no, she fixed it way better than I did. So um, this, this time. Oh, it's muted on the screen. I can see that from here. I don't know if that's helpful for on the button. There you go. Over a little more to the left. Okay, now, now we'll try this again. Sorry about that. I started wrestling myself. I did a lot of TV and... At the age of 13, I um, got into um, big-time wrestling here in Detroit putting up the ring and, and, and worked a lot of the background for the shows. And um, in 1982, I started wrestling myself. I did a lot of TV and, and stuff when I lived in Florida for WWF and WCW. I had been to Japan twice. I've been to Korea. I had been all over the United States wrestling, but JCW was something different for me. darkness in the in the wrestling just made it so easy for me to um, take my anger and my frustrations and my guilt and my shame and everything that were bottled up inside of me would come out on my opponent. When I was a child my mother had epilepsy so my fear I'd watch her have her um, her spells and and and, and wake up and be all bloody and when you're two or three years old I remember hiding in a broom closet I, I hid for hours and hours I can remember being in trouble and hiding and, and coming out like six seven hours later no one even remembering why I was hiding then my father would beat me because I was such a horrible child and all it was was I was so full of fear that that that's what made me close up and kind of completely closed off from everybody because um, I, I didn't know how to communicate what was really wrong but but I knew that I wasn't liked even at that point so that, that I was pushed away as a as a child and I hid the, the wrestling became my hiding area where I could completely hide from me or anybody around now, I wasn't Tom Lapeer anymore. I became Tommy Starr, the death dealer. I could hide and, and do all my drugs. I could, I could hide and, and do all my cutting. My favorite weapon was anything wrapped in barbed wire. I could jump out from balconies and go wrapped in barbed wire and go through tables wrapped in barbed wire and come up all bloody. And it still wasn't, it wasn't enough that I'd go home and I'd beat myself with a Kindle stick and I'd cut myself and cut myself. The, 
the more that I cut, the, the more the adrenaline rush would come and the more that that feeling that was a high, it, 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 for me it was better than going to get the best drugs you could buy. It was at that point that the darkness really, really took over. I was going to lose my family. My wife finding out the stuff that I'm doing with the drugs and, and, and all this stuff is all starting to cave in. The police would come and make me leave the house. Or my wife one point said she was leaving and took the kids. The problem was is that they never knew who, who it was that was coming home. They never knew who was coming home. Was it going to be dad? Or was it going to be the death dealer? The problem was that 90% of the time it was the death dealer. The verbal abuse that my family took. And I broke everything in the house. Thought the verbal abuse, don't worry about it, goes in one ear and out the other. I'll be over it in five minutes. Problem was that I didn't realize that it was like acid etching on their hearts. Them words never left. I could break their arm, it would heal. Those that those words never left. I didn't realize that till later when I started coming to church and he started breaking me down. That's when I start realizing. Maybe then is when I really started realizing how bad I really was. until I was sitting there in that sermon that day and I realized that someone told them I, that I was here that sermon had hit me so hard I had this sense that dad, that he was speaking straight to me I went home and told my wife that there was something weird going on there and I have I have to go back next week it was through this process that my daughter's friends, dad had a men's group at the church. And she kept saying, hey, my dad's got a men's group, why don't you come? One Thursday night, I finally go. Not only do they all look like they've got it all together and everything, the group is called Men of Light. After I had dumped all this onto the table of my past sinful life, and what I had been doing, I knew that feeling came over me that I'm not going to be able to stay now. They're going to ask me to leave. There's, there's no way that someone like me could be in church. They're going to ask me to leave. It was totally the opposite. I felt love for the first time. I never grew up with love. I had no clue what love really felt like. And it was through the men of light and the gentleman there that I became, I could accept Christ as my Savior, my personal Savior. God has transformed my life completely. I'm, I'm a better husband. I'm a better father now. They don't have to worry about who's going to show up anymore. That, that um, the death dealer is gone. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. God can takes my past, my darkness, and actually can 
use it to help other people. I was at church greeting one morning and a car pulls in and this gentleman says, I don't know why I'm here. He says, I can't come in here. And he pulls up his pant leg to show me he's got tattoos on his leg. And it was an ICP tattoo and he was worried about coming to our church. God can take our horrible background and make such a loving story, his story, out of anything. If he could take that dark side of me, the death deal, and give him life and turn him into this, nobody, there is nobody, I don't care what you've done or where you're at, you're not too far gone. There's nobody too far gone that Jesus can't reach. See, today, I think each of us have markers in our life. Some of them we look back on fondly, and some of them we look back and we wish they were just different. But what I believe with all that I am today is that God desperately wants to give us new markers. Ones that erase old ones, ones that, that overcome them, ones that trump them, ones that we look back and we know they have changed us and shaped us so that our story begins to look like the story of Jesus. And Tommy's story, no, maybe, maybe nothing about his story resonates with you. But here's a guy named Henry, or Henry Nowen, a guy named Brennan Manning, whose story I think matters to us. And I'm just going to read it to you quickly. After 22 years of living by secondhand faith, on February 8, 1956, I met Jesus and moved from belief to faith. It was noon. The Angelus bell from the cloistered Carmelite monastery sounded in the distance. I was kneeling in a small chapel in Loretto, Pennsylvania. At five minutes after three, I rose shakily from the floor, knowing that the greatest adventure of my life had just begun. I entered a new perspective, accurately described by Paul in Colossians 3.11, which says this, Christ is all and is in all. During those three hours on my knees, I felt like a little boy kneeling at the seashore. Little waves washed up and lapped against my knees. Slowly, the waves grew bigger and stronger until they reached my waist. Suddenly, a tremendous wave of concussion force knocked me over backward and swept me off the beach, reeling in midair, arching through space, vaguely aware that I was being carried to a place I had never been before, the heart of Jesus. In this first ever-in-my-life experience of being unconditionally loved, I moved back and forth between ecstasy and fear. The moment lingered on and on in a timeless now, and so without warning, a hand gripped my heart. I could barely breathe. The awareness of being loved was no longer gentle, tender, and comfortable. The love of Christ, the crucified Son of God, took on the wildness, fury, and passion of a sudden spring storm. Jesus died on the cross for me. I'd known that before, but in the way that John Henry Newman describes as notional knowledge, abstract, far away, largely irrelevant to the gut issues of life just another trinket in the dusty pawn shop of doctrinal beliefs. But in one blinding moment of saving truth, it was real knowledge calling for personal engagement of my mind and heart. Christianity was being loved and falling in love with Jesus. Later, the words in the first letter of Peter would illuminate and verify my experience. You did not see him, yet you love him. And still, without seeing him, you were already filled with a joy so glorious that it cannot be described. Because you believe and you are sure of the end to which your faith looks forward, that is the salvation of your soul. 
At last, drained, spent, feeling limp and lost in speechless humility, I was back kneeling at the seashore with quiet, calm waves of love sweeping over me like a gentle tide, saturating my mind and heart in a tranquil mode of deep worship. On that day, I knew God's love and power, the essence of Christian faith. See, I I believe with all that I am that God desperately wants you to have a moment or moments or a life that is so defined by moments where he is present and you sense him, that your heart is radically transformed and changed and that you look with new markers on your life, that the old things that pointed you in certain directions no longer matter and there's a new newness to you, life that is found in him. It's why in just a couple moments we're going to take communion. And see, lots of traditions are different in this, but what we come out of this, like what we call the Wesleyan tradition, a guy named John Wesley, all that to say this, one of the things that we love is that we believe this moment of taking communion, this moment of, of this bread and this cup that signified the death of Jesus, but also signified his life and his grace and his love, and maybe just maybe today, this needs to be a marker in your life. And so you take these elements for the first time, and it becomes for you this, this salvation, this saving grace of God that says to you, you are mine, and I am yours. And these words of God to Jesus and his baptism become the words to us. You are my son or my daughter, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. See, last week there were several of you who made a commitment to give your life to Christ. And I would challenge you with this, that if you haven't been baptized, be baptized that you would talk to me about what the commitment you made last week, what it signifies, that if you haven't gone to growth track, that you'll even go today. You'll make commitment to begin doing daily activities, markers in your life. And the reason we take communion at least once a month is to remind ourselves of the marker that this is, that it is God's grace and his love to us poured out in the person of Jesus. So this morning, as we take these elements, maybe for you this needs to be a marker that signifies a step in a new direction. Maybe today just needs to be a reminder that God says to you, you are my son, you're my daughter, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. This morning, the, the prats and the twinings are going to help us with communion. And so as, as they come and as the praise team comes, we're going to sing one more song together. We'll, we'll sing this song, um, Lead Me to the Cross. And it's this recognition that somehow in Christ's death and his resurrection, he gives us new hope and new life. And so this morning, as you, as you come forward to take communion together, you take these elements, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, whatever you call it, that they will be for you God's grace. This will be for you a marker in your life. And we'll leave here. We'll begin to make commitments. We'll begin to live out this way of life that's defined by Jesus. And it transforms us. It renews us. And no longer do the past markers, the things that have shaped us, who we've become today will define us, but we'll be defined by the future reality that God is redeeming and restoring all the world, that all that is broken will be made right. We'll begin to live into the reality of our past. So this morning, as, as I pray and as we sing, as you take these elements, maybe today this becomes a marker in your life. And if it's true, and if that's what happens, and I... I challenge you to tell someone about it so that someone can walk alongside you because our identity, our belonging, our purpose are meant to be shared. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the way you are near to us, the way you come 
in the midst of broken moments, the way you come to us in the midst of celebrations and highs, the way you are near in every aspect of our life. So, Father, today we pray that in these moments, as we prepare to take these elements that represent your love and your grace to us, that they would shape us and mold us and will be so defined by a God who loves us, who says to us, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So, Father, today as we take these elements, maybe for the first time, it's a moment of turning, a moment of repentance for us. And so we pray that you will continue to use us and change us so that the story of Tommy is our story as well. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen.